Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant. Exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. Chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. There she is. to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, marooned for all eternity, buried alive, buried alive. Sean! Sean! Uh, welcome to this special episode of Movie Geeks United, and uh, we're bringing back Ray Morton, our returning guest. He's been on uh, many times in the past, and we always look forward to having him on to talk about the creation of some of our and the behind-the-scenes stories as well about some of our most beloved films over the years. And uh, we had him on several years ago to do Star Trek The Motion Picture. We gave us a good uh, look at the history and the making of that film. And uh, so it's only logical, uh, for lack of a better word, <laughs> that we would Perfect have him work. on. Yeah, there we go. For uh, a look at the sequel, Star Trek the Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which was released in June of 1982. It has turned 40 years old, and that's really hard to fathom. It's hard to believe. But uh, anyway, Ray is the author of such great books as King Kong, uh, The History of a Screen Icon, uh, and he's done books on the making of such films as Close Encounters of the Third Kind and uh, A Hard Day's Night and so many others. Uh, check out his books where you get your books, all that stuff, Amazon and all those places. Uh, his his writing is, is, is quite good, and he's very uh, knowledgeable about these subjects that he writes about. And I would highly recommend any of our listeners who, hasn't, who haven't read his work to seek it out. So anyway, and without further ado, we will get into the creation of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, we'll just pick it up where we left off. We left off with Star Trek, the motion picture being rushed into its release uh, after they were running out of time and uh, working against the clock. They were uh, locked into a date, uh, December of 79. Uh, so uh, the film did okay business, but it was the most expensive film of all time at the time of its release. I think it even made the Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, so sure. uh, Paramount was a little skittish about a sequel because it did okay, but not quite what maybe what they had hoped. So we'll let you take it from there. All right, sounds good. Well, it's actually it actually did very well for the time. It made about 150 million, which in 1979, early 1980 dollars was a, a bona fide success. Um, 
the thing is that it wasn't profitable and it wasn't profitable because the film costs so much. It cost about 45 million all told. And as we know, the rule of thumb is you need to make about three times the budget in order to be profitable. And it, it, it made just a little, you know, it, it was a little under, you know, it made a little over the three times the budget. So it made a profit, but nowhere near the profit they hoped for and nowhere near the profit they felt after all the aggravation that they that they really wanted to have. So the, the thought was at Paramount was that there was an audience. Clearly, there was an audience for, for Star Trek in the movies, but they needed to figure out a way to make it to make a film a lot cheaper so that it would be profitable. Otherwise, it wouldn't really be worth making. So the dilemma was, how do we go about and do this again, only in a much more affordable way? Um, the first thing they did was they removed Gene Roddenberry from the producer seat because um, Roddenberry was one of the reasons the first film went so overboard. Um, famously, he kept rewriting the script even when the script was supposed to be locked, and that forced a lot of last-minute changes. And as we know, that creates a lot of you know extra expense because you can't prepare properly. And the feeling was he just was not suited to produce a film of this type and also he was he was considered a challenge to work with at paramount so the thought was let's find somebody who is a little smarter about um producing things on a reasonable budget the other thing they decided to do and this is a thing that sounds strange now but was a little more common back then um back then it was it was not unusual for studios to produce TV movie sequels to hit feature films. Basically, that was the era before franchises and things. So the feeling was, if it wasn't really worth producing a theatrical sequel, they could still produce a TV movie sequel. And there are a number of good examples. Famously, there's a sequel to Rosemary's Baby um, called Whatever Happened to Rosemary's Baby. Um, there were a couple of sequels to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and different things like that. So the idea was they they decided to do a low-budget movie version of Star Trek, which they would produce through the television division. And the idea was they would announce it as a TV movie uh, in part to keep the costs down, but also to keep the expectations down. And the feeling was that if it developed well, they would consider upgrading it to a feature film release. But if it didn't, they would at least get a TV movie out of it. And there was some thought back then that they could use the TV movie as a pilot for a new Star Trek television series because there was still some question of, like, could you do a series of Star Trek films or maybe ultimately it belonged back on television. So it was a little bit up in the air. Anyway, they brought in the head of Paramount Television, a guy named Gary Nardino, and they basically gave him the job of getting a second Star Trek movie off the ground. And he, Gary Nardino brought in a producer named Harv Bennett. And Harv Bennett had been a network executive at CBS for many years. And then in the late 60s, he had transitioned into being a producer. His most, um, his most notable series out of the gate was a series called The Mod Squad, which was a real big hit in the late 60s for ABC. Um, and then later, he was known for producing the Bionic shows, the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. 
And he was also the executive producer of not the first, but the most popular um, miniseries, uh, Rich Man, Poor Man. So he had a really strong track record in television. And because of the bionic shows, science fiction television. Um, so Gary Nardino basically thought Hart Bennett would be the guy, the best guy to shepherd the project. So the famous story that Hart Bennett told is he had just, um, he had worked most of his career as a producer at Universal, but he had just signed a deal with Paramount to come over there and make television. And he had signed it with Gary Nardino. And he said he hadn't even been at the studio a week when he got called to a meeting with basically Gary Nardino, but also the heads of the movie division, Michael Eisner and Barry Diller, and Charlie Bluthorn, who was the owner of Gulf and Western, which was Paramount's parent company. So these were like the top guys at the studio. And Bennett said he had no idea why he was being called over. And when he walked in the room, the first question they asked, I think Michael Eisner asked him, what did you think of Star Trek, the motion picture? And he said that he wasn't, he knew he was being sounded out for something, but he didn't know really what, what they were looking for. So he said, I just had to be honest. He said, I thought it was boring. And, and Charlie Bluehorn then said, well, can you make a better movie? And he said, well, yeah, I can make a less boring movie. That's for sure. Um, and yeah, and then the famous quote is Charlie Bluehorn said, can you make it for less than 45 fucking million dollars? And he said, I can make five movies for that in television. And Bluehorn just looked at him and said, go do it. And he said, that's how he got the job to produce Star Trek two. That's a very interesting story. Yeah. I know there was a lot of, uh, conflict with Gene Roddenberry and I believe Leonard Nimoy. I don't think they got along very well. To the point where, Not particularly. yeah, that's what 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 I'd always heard, uh, and I, if I remember correctly from our earlier discussion about Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and that Leonard Nimoy was um, actually thinking about not doing Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and I, I can't remember if that had anything to do with his disdain for Gene Roddenberry, but I'm I'm thinking maybe it did. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, there were there were several things. Uh, Nimoy was. Um, very upset because Paramount was doing a lot of merchandising of Star Trek in the mid and late seventies because the show was so popular in syndication, but they weren't giving, um, they weren't giving the actors a cut of it. So he was mad about that. And he and Gene Roddenberry had had a really tumultuous relationship. They, Gene Roddenberry had written a show for Nimoy, a pilot at Universal called the Quester Tapes. And the, and it was created for Leonard Nimoy, but then, um, the studio decided at the last minute not to use Nimoy, and Nimoy felt that, that Gene Roddenberry had not stood up for him on that, and they ended up casting Robert Foxworth. And, um, and then when they, when they decided to do Star Trek The Motion Picture, Nimoy actually declined to appear in it. So the, well, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I gotta back up. When it came time to do Star Trek The Motion Picture was preceded by a show called Star Trek Phase Two. They were originally going to bring it back as a television show. And because Roddenberry didn't, was mad at Nimoy, he basically cut Spock out of the show and then made a big announcement saying Nimoy had declined to be in the show. And Nimoy was really mad about that. So they really had to beg and plead to get Nimoy into Star Trek The Motion Picture. And of course, famously, um, that was a difficult production and, you know, critically didn't get 
solid reviews and Nimoy felt the characters were underused and he didn't care for Gene's writing. So when Harv Bennett approached him about doing Star Trek two, he basically said, I'm not interested. I don't want to do it. And he, he especially didn't want to do it because um, he, he thought doing it through the television division, he said, you guys are just going to do a cheap ripoff and Nimoy could be a difficult guy but he had a lot of pride in Star Trek and his role in it. And he said, I didn't want to see it done on the cheap. I, I didn't want to see them like he thought they were just grinding out a movie to make money. And he just didn't want to be a part of that. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said for all that. Mm-hmm. And I think his, uh, you know, and it, and it shows because when he took over as director uh, later on, you know, especially with the fourth one, you know, you, you can, his uh, sense of, um, uh, of passion for the characters or, or whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm probably fumfering for a, probably could use a better term there, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but no, he, he, yeah, he cared. He cared yeah, a lot. You, you, know? you can tell. Yeah. That he, that he really did. There's, there's a passion there and, uh, for those characters. So, well, we'll get into, uh, the casting of, uh, well, how they came up with the uh, plot and the various scripts and all that stuff. We'll, we'll get into some of that, how, how that uh, came about. Right. Well, so Bennett was given the job to produce Star Trek, and he actually was not that familiar with Star Trek. He had seen a little bit of it, but um, had not really watched it uh, in with any kind of uh, attention. So he said the first thing he decided to do was watch all of the episodes of the television series because he wanted to figure out what what had appealed to audiences so much, like why this thing was such a phenomenon. So he basically watched all of the, I believe it's 79 episodes of the original show. And he came away feeling that a couple things. The first thing was he suddenly understood why he found Star Trek, the motion picture to be so dull because the show was action adventure. Um, and it had obviously science fiction ideas in it, but it was primarily an action adventure show. And the movie was really more cerebral science fiction. Um, it wasn't an action adventure and, and therefore it was a little bit tedious, especially if you were expecting, you know, a lot of, a lot of adventure and such. So he said he wanted to make the film an action adventure. He also realized that the thing he liked most about the show was what a lot of people liked about it. He really liked the relationship between Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy, you know, the logical guy, the emotional guy and the guy in the middle who had to make all the decisions. And and that was a thing a lot of fans had complained was kind of missing from the motion picture. So Bennett said he wanted to make sure that he emphasized that. And then the main thing that he took away was he was watching the episodes and he there was a famous episode called Space Seed in which Ricardo Montalban had appeared as a character called Khan. And and at the end of that episode, Khan is um he tries to take over the Enterprise and kill Captain Kirk and all sorts of other things. And, and in the end, Kirk, you know, wins out. But instead of killing him, he maroons him on a planet, like a wild planet that will require a lot of, um, uh, conquering basically to make it livable. The idea being that take this guy whose passion was for conquest and turn him loose on a planet of his own rather than have him keep trying to take over other people's planets and see what he might develop. And that's why it was called Space Seed. They were planting a seed. And I believe one of the last lines in the episode is something like, be nice to return here in 20 years and see what he has created. 
And and Bennett said when he heard that, he suddenly figured out what the movie was going to be. He wanted to make it a sequel, and he wanted it to feature Khan. And and he really loved Montalban's performance, which is quite good in the episode. And so he came away with all of those elements. The other element he came away with was he had felt that um, the actors were all getting older, and he felt in Star Trek The Motion Picture they were trying too hard to pretend that time had not passed. And he said he felt like the danger there was that they would all look silly trying to pretend they were 35 and running around and all that. So he also decided he wanted to, to make it about um, them aging and especially Captain Kirk and how would he handle aging. And so those elements all went into an outline that he wrote that was originally called, I believe, War of the Generations um, because they had Khan leading the youth of the galaxy against the Federation and one of the youth involved was Kirk's son, so that element came in. Um, so Bennett wrote that story, and then he brought in a writer named Jack Sowards. And Jack Sowards was a TV writer and a TV Movie of the Week writer, um, and apparently a Star Trek fan. So they they worked over Bennett's story and developed it further, and uh, Sowards wrote the first draft of the screenplay. And the other challenge they had was how do we get Leonard Nimoy to be in the film? Because he had pretty much flat out said, I'm not going to be in it. And um, he both uh, both Sowards and uh, Bennett claim credit for the idea. My guess is it probably was a little bit of both of them. But they thought, well, Leonard Nimoy is an actor. And actors love um, big, juicy scenes. They decided to give him a death scene. They thought if they could bring him back, and basically for a cameo and kill him off in the first, you know, third of the film, they would accomplish being able to advertise a Star Trek movie with Mr. Spock in it because the studio was pretty, um, pretty adamant that you had to have Mr. Spock in it. But they, they thought they might be able to get Leonard to shoot for a couple of weeks. And if they give him a death scene, it's a great thing for an actor to play. It's also a way for him to leave the series, which is really what he wanted to do at that point. And they were right because that appealed to Nimoy. And he said, go ahead and develop it and, and show me the script. So Sowers wrote a draft. He wrote a couple of drafts, I guess. And then they decided, or Bennett decided, it still needed more work. Um, so he called in a writer named Sam Peoples. And Sam Peoples had written for the original show. He was the guy who actually wrote the pilot of Star Trek that sold the series. Because famously, there was two pilots for Star Trek, one written by Gene Roddenberry, and that was not picked up. And so that, but the network said, Hey, we like the idea. We just don't like the pilot come up with a more action adventure kind of pilot. Sam peoples wrote that one. It was called where no man has gone before. And that was what sold the series NBC. So Bennett thought, well, let's get, let's get that guy. And Sam peoples came in and took Bennett, took the Sowers draft and basically rewrote it and took Khan out of it uh, because he decided he didn't want to revisit Khan. And he put in two aliens from another dimension. And those two aliens were going to cause all of the problems. And Bennett was horrified when he read the script because one of the dictates from Paramount was that they wanted a black hat heavy, as they called it. They wanted a villain for Captain Kirk to fight in the movie because they, part of the feeling was Star Trek, the motion picture, they basically, you know, their their antagonist is a giant cloud, 
and then later a giant machine. And the feeling was, again, too esoteric, too abstract. You got to have a bad guy in the movie. And Bennett wanted Khan and he wanted Ricardo Montalban. And basically people took him out and replaced him with these weird aliens. And so Bennett basically said goodbye to people. And then he approached a writer named Judy Burns, who had also written for this, uh, the series, to see if she would rewrite it. And as they were talking about it, she said, you love this so much, you should rewrite it. And Bennett said, you know what, I think I will. So Bennett did a couple of drafts of the script, but it basically wasn't coming together. Um, you know, Bennett was a writer, but not, you know, he wasn't, that wasn't his main thing was producing. He wasn't the most polished of writers. Um, and the script just wasn't gelling. Uh, they had come up with a really great idea, which was contributed by the art director, a guy named Mike Miner. And the idea was um, they were looking for a weapon or, you know, a, a MacGuffin. And he came up with the idea of terraforming and a, a basically a bomb that could terraform a planet. And that became the Genesis device. So good things were going in the script, but it just wasn't gelling. At the same time, they were looking for a director and basically couldn't get anybody to direct the movie. Robert Weiss didn't want to come back for a sequel. He especially didn't want to come back if it was going to be a TV movie because he was a feature director. Um, plus, he'd had a pretty rough time, and I think he was done with Star Trek at that point. Um, and they couldn't get a lot of other good directors because, again, they were like, well, you guys are doing this as a TV movie. We don't, we, we don't do TV movies. And the TV directors they could get they weren't that crazy about um, there was quite a difference in quality in those days between feature and, and TV directors. And they were kind of a little stumped as to what they were going to do. And Paramount was a little bit on the fence. They were leaning towards making it a theatrical release, but you know, let's, let's, let's see if it all gels. And, and the idea came up um, from uh, the producer's assistant was a woman named Deborah Arakelian. And she suggested Nicholas Meyer, who was at that time had had a career as a writer of TV movies and low budget features. And then during the writer's strike of 1970, I believe it was three, he wrote a Sherlock Holmes novel called The 7% Solution. And then that was published after the strike was over and became a bestseller. So suddenly he was a bestselling novelist. And the novel was sold to uh, Universal. And the condition was Meyer wanted to write the script. He wrote the script. The movie came out. It got good reviews. It did well at the box office. And he got nominated for an Academy Award. So suddenly, Nick Meyer became a hot property. He wrote and directed a really terrific science fiction fantasy uh, thriller, a romance called Time After Time which had come out and done well, but not spectacularly well. So he was well-regarded, but not yet considered, you know, an A-list director. And the thought was, if they got him, they'd get a solid director, but also a really great writer. And he was approached and he accepted and then basically sat down and in 12 days took all the different drafts of the script and rewrote them all into the script that they ended up filming he ended up, he got no credit for it. They ended up giving the credit to Jack Sowards and the story credit to Sowards and Harv Bennett, but the script that actually got filmed was written by Nicholas Meyer. 
You know, uh, yeah, and the uh, I don't know if this is true or not. I was just uh, curious though uh, about Nicholas Meyer's uh, actual shooting script was supposedly written in 12 days. I think it was like yeah, just very quickly writing that. So uh, that's uh, that's that's a real writer for you there. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, the, the famous story was that um, you know they he, they had approached him about directing and he said he was interested and uh-huh. they said okay we'll we'll send you the next draft of the script like, you know, in a week or two, like when it's ready. And he said, okay. And then he said, like, a couple months went by, and he goes, whatever happened to Star Trek? Like, they never got back in touch with me. And he called them up. He called up Hard Ben and said, where's the script? And he goes, oh, the script's not working. It's not good. So he goes, well, let me see it. And they sent up all the drafts, and he agreed they weren't good, but they all had bits and pieces. And he said, well, why don't I take all the bits and pieces we like, and I'll write a new script. And they said, yeah, the problem is if we don't have a script ready in 12 days for budgeting and for special effects, the movie will get canceled because they already had a slot open for June of 1982. And if the movie didn't get approved basically in 12 days, they weren't going to make it. So he sat down and in 12 days wrote the whole script and turned it in and Paramount approved it. And at that point, it was bumped up into a feature film. An amazing story, yeah. So he saved the day, I guess you would say. We wouldn't be talking about Star Trek Two. Maybe not even the franchise when you think no, about it. No, 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 not at all. Um, you know, Star Trek the Motion Picture revived it after ten years after its cancellation, but it's Star Trek Two that drove it forward. So. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. And and that was the one that um uh, cemented the uh, maybe the term franchise. I don't think it had been talked about in terms of a quote unquote franchise before that. But then no, after well, Star Trek too. Yeah, Paramount. The, the funny thing is the term franchise, which now everybody uses to refer to series series of films, mm-hmm. was a was a joke that used to go around Paramount because Star Trek. You know, they were making movies, they were making television, they were making novels and games. And someone nicknamed it the franchise, like a McDonald's thing. And it was always a joke. And then somehow people caught on and started referring to it outside of Paramount as the franchise. And before you know it, that's how they refer to every movie series. And it always makes me laugh because everyone refers to it so seriously. And I said, guys, it started as a joke. (laughs) But there you are. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how those things work out. Sure. This is true. So we'll get into the uh, well. uh, First of all, I I guess we should uh, talk about this a little bit about uh, early drafts of the screenplay were leaked, and there was some leaking of uh, maybe some costumes and and things. There were there were a few, and this was before this thing became commonplace. But some stuff got out there, uh, and the fans were not happy. So we talk a little bit about that if you want to. Right. Well, there, there's there's where you get into the Gene Roddenberry stuff. So basically, the decision was made to kill off Spock. And um, the way that the script was originally structured is, um, is that Spock was the captain of the Enterprise and uh, Kirk was an admiral. He wasn't retired, but he was an admiral. He wasn't in the field. And then the first third of the film, Spock is killed. Um, he, there's an accident and basically like what happens in the final film, he shuts down a reactor to save everybody, but he dies in the process and Kirk then must take over the captaincy of the enterprise to deal with this emergency. That, that was sort of the original way it was laid out. The idea being again, let's, let's let Leonard come in and shoot for a couple of weeks, but then he doesn't have to have the full commitment. Um, Gene Roddenberry 
who had essentially been removed from creative control of Star Trek, really hated the idea that they were going to kill off Spock, and he really objected to it. And he, you know, the, the, the trick with Gene Roddenberry was that Paramount did not want him involved in the creative aspects of the film, of the, of the film series, because he had not really proven himself very well. But they knew they needed to essentially keep him around and keep him happy because it, it, it's hard to, well, it's not that hard to imagine these days um, with the rabid fandom on the Internet. But Star Trek had a very rabid fandom and they could be quite vocal and quite challenging. And they all looked up to Roddenberry, as, as his nickname goes, the great bird of the galaxy. And he basically had the fans in the palm of his hands and Paramount knew that if he started bad-mouthing the movie, that it could really hurt its economic chances because the fans would listen to him. So they had, he had been given a title on Star Trek II. He worked on the film, but he was called the executive consultant. He was not the producer, and he wasn't the executive producer. He was a consultant. And his deal paid him a lot of money, and he was allowed to read all the drafts of the script, and he was allowed to comment on all the cuts of the film, and they were required to listen to his input, but they were not necessarily required to take his input. So he was there and he had input and sometimes they did take his ideas and a lot of times they didn't. Um, but basically he was privy to all of the developments. And when he found out they were going to kill off Spock, he really argued not to do it. And basically Bennett said, look, look, this is the story we're telling. And, you know, realistically, this is the only way we're going to get Leonard in the movie. So, and so what Roddenberry did was he leaked the, he leaked an outline, um, to the fans at one of the conventions. And when they found out, he, and he leaked it with the idea that they're going to kill Spock. He had a way of making the studio the enemy all the time. So all the fans got upset and they were sending letters and then death threats and, also, they were sending death threats to Leonard Nimoy and to Hart Bennett. And, you know, if you kill Spock, we're going to kill you. And anyone familiar with sort of modern day Internet fandom and, you know, Zack Snyder fans uh, kind of know this is a thing that happens. And basically, Nimoy was ready to quit. He said, look, I didn't sign on for this. And they were trying to figure out what to do about it. And what Bennett decided to do is he actually said, let's not do anything about it. Let's not address let's not address it um you know uh let's just let the controversy bubble and when the film comes out you know it'll be free publicity they were kind of hoping for but they also realized that that now the secret had been spoiled like that was supposed to be a big surprise in the film and now it was no longer a surprise and when that happened they also realized that probably can't really kill off Spock in the first third of the movie. Like it's too big a moment. The movie would never recover from that. So they moved it to the end and they talked to Leonard and he agreed that he would be in the film and, but that he would die at the end. And then famously Nick, the movie opens as, as anyone who has seen it knows with a uh, simulator sequence where it's on the bridge of the enterprise and they're training a bunch of young cadets and there's an attack by the Klingons. That's part of the simulation and Nick Meyer made a joke one day. They were in the screening room looking at some tests and they were complaining about all this fan stuff. And he said, like, that we ought to kill him off in the first five minutes. That'll show him. And Bennett reacted and he said, that's a great idea. 
So what they ended up doing is they kill Spock in the simulator sequence, and then you find out that it's a fake out. That, that nobody, you know, it was all a, a, you know, a fake thing and that he's not really dead. So he, Bennett, and this was his thinking, he was like, so we're going to show the audience Spock dying in the first five minutes, and then we're going to show him he didn't die, and they're going to think that they basically misunderstood when they said we're going to kill Spock, that, oh, they misunderstood that we were just doing it in this one scene, and then we're going to surprise him again at the end when we actually kill him. So they got their surprise back, which is what they were the most unhappy about. And um, and so they restructured the script that way. And I think I think we can all agree it works terrifically. Oh, yeah. 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 That was definitely the best yeah. way to go. Uh, yeah. And, 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 you, and you're right. It would have been tough for the film to recover had they killed him earlier in the film. Yeah, but, uh, it's it's, uh, you know, it gives you the uh, real emotional resonance where it's placed in, in the film's uh, context. So, yes, totally, yeah. totally works. When you kill off a beloved character, you, you have to do it at the climax of the movie. You can't do oh, yeah. But But to address your other point, like as the production went on, designs were getting stolen and then sold at conventions. And uh, someone broke into Western Costume, which was the costume facility on the Paramount, and stole some of the uniforms. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of part, you know, Star Trek fans could be fanatic and they'd pay a lot of money for stuff. So there was a lot of uh, incentive to steal and they and they said it led to in later productions like really tight security, but they didn't think they needed it in Star Trek Two, and then they learned that they did. So that's that's very interesting. And when you think about probably I don't know how much of the stuff that got trashed back in the '60s during the original series that they, stuff sure, they just threw sure. away that would be worth a fortune today, it's just amazing when you think about it. So, uh, well, we'll get into the uh, the actual production and casting and all that. Uh, they weren't sure they were going to get Ricardo Montalban. Uh, there was a little uh, snafu there, I think, about that, uh, yeah. getting him on board. And uh, so we'll talk yeah. about that and then the production of the film. Well, the, the the joke of it is they wanted to use Montalban and they planned the script. And then what I think they had talked to him early on about, is this a thing you might be interested in. And I think he said, you, I might be, you know, like all people like show me a script. Whatever. And then they were going ahead and they were planning the production. And it occurred to them that nobody found out if Montalban was actually available when they were going to make the movie and whether he, you know, officially had agreed to be in the film. Um, so they kind of went to him at the last minute and they would have been really screwed if he, if he couldn't have been in it. And at the time, he was doing the series Fantasy Island, which was his sort of late career um, renaissance, because obviously he'd been a player in the movies in the, in the 40s and 50s. Um, and as it turns out, they were able to work out the schedule so that when he was on hiatus from Fantasy Island, he would come in and be in Star Trek II. And the thing about it is he only shot on Star Trek II for... I know at least two weeks, it was possibly three weeks, but it wasn't much more than that. And and they fitted in basically to his uh, holiday hiatus from Fantasy Island. And the way the schedule worked out, he was actually filmed before the rest of the main cast had signed on. So famously, he shot all of his scenes in limbo. The only main cast actors he worked with were Walter Koenig and Paul Winfield. He never worked with William Shatner, Kirk and... And Khan never actually have a scene face to face. They're all the, the their scenes where they talk to one another are either over the radio or over the view screen. But the view screens obviously were filmed separately. So 
So Shatner and Montalban never worked together on Star Trek II. Um, he was filmed first, and then the rest of the cast came in. Because the other thing about Star Trek II, the way they produced it, the, the budget for the film was $11 million, which was roughly was a little less than one-fourth of, of what the budget of the first film was. So Bennett had structured it as what in television they referred to as a bottle show. And a bottle show is a, is a show where when you don't have enough money to go out to other locations, you just film it on all of the existing sets. Um, basically, you stay in the bottle. And so 90% of Star Trek II was shot on the Enterprise sets. Um, it was shot as the Enterprise for, a, for most of it. But for the first few weeks, it was redressed as the Reliant, which is the ship that um, uh, Khan hijacks in the film and uses to attack Captain Kirk. So basically, they moved a few of the set pieces around, and it, but it's the exact same set as the Enterprise, which that's another reason the cast never worked together. There was not a separate ship, so they needed to get the Reliant scenes done and then reconfigure it back to the Enterprise. Um, but basically, 90% of that movie takes place on the same basic sets, you know. Yeah, they um, that was uh, they, they they covered it well. The fact that the budget yes. was reduced, and you wouldn't really wouldn't really detect that. Uh, you know, it's um, obviously not not this not as much of um, uh, the special effects aren't as in. Uh, we we don't see them on display as they were in the Star Trek motion right. picture in this film because yes. this is more of a grounded grounded film I guess you would call it uh, in, sure. in terms of the story and all that so um, yes well, this was it was a more character oriented piece right. whereas That's the first film yeah was a story and spectacle oriented piece so the effects were definitely necessary in star trek 2 but they weren't the bulk of the movie they kind of were actually and and um some folks probably know this many of the effects in star trek 2 were shots repurposed from star trek 1 so um quite a few in fact famously all of the dry dock sequences in star trek 2 are just edited down versions of the same shots from star trek the motion picture a lot of the models were reused. They were uh, redecorated, but they were the same models. Many of the ship's flying shots, anytime the Enterprise is flying by itself, quite often it was just a repurposed shot from the motion picture. The The main visual effects that were created for Star Trek II were the end stuff, all the space battle stuff, because that was that had not been um, that had not been included in the motion picture. Yeah, that's uh that's that's interesting as well. Uh, yeah, they um, like I said, they they did uh, a, a really good job. Um, you know, uh, in the cost cutting department, I guess you would sure. say. So, so, uh, <laughs> the, the the place you see it the most is that in Star Trek the Motion Picture, the Enterprise interiors were often portrayed as vast. Like there's a scene where Kirk comes in and there's a shot of the shuttle bay and the loading docks. And they were augmented with these vast matte paintings to make this whole thing seem much bigger than it was. And then um, later in the engine room, they used matte paintings to make it seem like the, the, like the, the set was many stories tall. And they didn't do that in Star Trek II. They, they kind of pulled everything in a little tighter, mostly because it wasn't necessary. But that's the place you sort of notice it. And some of the sets are repurposed sets, and they don't they don't look bad at all. 
but you they don't quite have the the polish of the sets in the motion picture but at the same time they're not really required so they did a really good job of not letting you know this was a low budget picture they had a little more trouble in the in the following film star trek 3 that unfortunately does look a little bit low budget um but there's another there's other stories for why that's the case you know oh yeah i would tend to agree definitely definitely. yeah well you were talking about the casting i will mention this uh right quick just a little trivia um Mm. we've talked about this uh off off the air about this one but uh originally maria mcgivers the ship's historian in the original space seed episode she was seduced by khan in the original episode was supposed to return as khan's wife but then yes. she was discovered to uh, it was discovered that she was confined to a wheelchair due to her multiple sclerosis, unfortunately. Yes, the, a- re- the actress, yes. Right, yes. the yeah. actress, uh, yeah, uh, Madeline Rue is her name. Instead of recasting yes. her, he had her uh, character written out of the story, Harv Bennett did. So uh, just yeah. an interesting piece of uh, casting information well, there, I thought. Which actually also strengthened the story in a way because – Originally, Khan was just mad at Kirk for marooning him on this planet, but now he could also blame him for the death of his wife. And that, so sadly for the actress, you know, but but it actually ended up strengthening the story to write her out. Yes, I would definitely say so. So, yeah. um, so the production started, I think, uh, the actual filming in November, I believe it was, uh, around Thanksgiving or something. something right, right around yeah. Thanksgiving of 81. 81, That's right. yes. Yeah. And it filmed, um, I believe, till the end of February of 82. Um, and they shot mostly, they actually never went outside. Even the exterior scenes were on the stages at Paramount. So they were basically on the stages the whole time. Um, the production basically went quite smoothly in com- comparison, especially in comparison to the first film, which did not go smoothly. And that was mostly because they had a lockdown script, which was not the case with the first film. The other thing is Bennett had hired, Bennett had taken an executive producer credit on the film and he had hired a guy named Robert Salen to line produce it. And Salen was a guy who produced and directed television commercials. And television commercials are famous for being very strictly budgeted and very, you know, like they have a lot of time compression to them. You can't spend weeks and months on shooting television commercials. So what Salen brought to the production is he he really scheduled it in a really solid way. And he also the other big problem with Star Trek, the motion picture was that there was famously uh, giant problems with the visual effects because they had hired a visual effects company that basically spent a year and $7 million to build equipment and to build, um, you know, to, to do design work and pre-production paintings, but never actually produced a single frame of film. And then um, they had to, at the last minute, they had to bring in um, Doug Trumbull and John Dykstra, who had just done the effects respectively for Close Encounters and, and um, Star Wars. And those guys had basically six months to turn out all of the visual effects for Star Trek, the motion picture, which are quite beautiful for the most part. There are a couple of dodgy ones, but it put everyone in the hospital and ended up costing, you know, and it drove the budget up many, many times. Salon came in and he had all of the visual effects sequences very strictly storyboarded. And then he bitted them out to different special effects companies and um, ILM, George Lucas's company, won the bid to do the film. 
and basically they 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 followed a very strict schedule and a very strict budget. So the visual effects that were done came in on time and on budget, which was not the case in the first film. And that was Salon's great contribution to it. He really got the whole thing running very smoothly. He ended up getting into a thing with Nicholas Meyer. He tried to have Nicholas Meyer fired at one point because um, he didn't like the way Nicholas Meyer was photographing a certain scene. And he went to Michael Eisner and said, we have to get rid of the rid of the director. And Michael Eisner basically told him, you can do that in television. If you do that in feature films, no director will work for Paramount. So we're not going to do that. There was some thought, and I'm not sure how true it was, but that Salon had been a director of TV commercials and he had done one or two low-budget films. There was some thought that he maybe wanted to take over the directing himself. Um, anyway, that was all kind of unpleasant, but it all settled down and they got the film done on budget, on time. And Meyer worked very well with the cast, who all really liked him, and he had a lot of energy. And he brought that energy to the picture. And I think you can see it in the in the final film. And what Meyer brought to it was he he originally he didn't really get Star Trek. He was not a person who watched it. and He didn't really understand it and initially was not that interested in making it. Um, but the two things that clued him in is he really was a big Star Wars fan. And he thought, well, gee, I'd like to make a space movie. That would be cool because back then everybody wanted to make a space movie in the aftermath of Star Wars. And he also, Meyer was a fan of the Horatio Hornblower uh, novels, which if anyone doesn't know what those are, it's a, the adventures of a, a series of novels about the adventures of a sea captain during the Napole a British sea captain during the Napoleonic Wars. And they, they're kind of rip-roaring action-adventure tales. Um, and he was a big fan of those. And as it turns out, that was one of the inspirations that Gene Roddenberry had when he was creating the show. He kind of wanted to be have, you know, echoes of Hornblower. So when Meyer figured out there was a connection, he said, well, I'm going to make a space movie, but I'm going to make a Horatio Hornblower adventure in space. And that's what kind of locked him into the concept. And that's what got him excited, and, and he brings that concept there. He had the uh, the uniforms redesigned, and if you look at them, they look like, um, you know, uh, 1800s naval uniforms, <laughs> you know, and that, that was all on purpose. And he brought that kind of energy and spirit to, to the picture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, so we'll talk about the post-production. Uh, the I, I guess um, you know they they had a, a June release date, so that's about four months to get this thing in shape uh, before its uh, actual release. So right, yeah. Well, the famous story Meyer tells is that he was uh, filming. They were like a month into production, and you know back then, like now we're kind of used to this kind of thing, but that back then how features tended to work is they would get the feature finished and then figure out when they were going to release it. And that's how Meyer had worked on um, time after time. He said it never occurred to him that like there was this locked in date. And I guess someone informed him that it was coming out in June and he was in, you know, they were filming, you know, through November and December. And he was like, well, when am I going to edit this thing? Cause it also was not uncommon in those days to take six months to a year to edit a movie. And they're like, well, no, your movie's coming out in a few months. So he basically, he shot all day and then he would work. Um, they had an editor, uh, William Dornish, who was editing the picture, but Meyer would go and work with him all night. 
And he basically said for, for the three or four months of production, he never saw daylight because he'd come in early and look at dailies and then he'd go to the stage and then he'd go to the editing rooms. And he said he never, he never was outside during the daylight. Um, and he was there. So editing began on the film as it was shooting, which is something again, common today, not as common back then. So they were really working to tighten up the picture and get it ready. Um, and meanwhile, ILM was also producing the effects on a, on a, on a parallel schedule. And, you know, famously with visual effects movies, you're cutting and you don't have the shots and eventually the shots start coming in. And they had the film pretty much in shape by May, which was about as late as they could go. Um, so it was tight, but it wasn't insane, but it was not, you know, it wasn't a relaxed post-production period. Um, and then also they brought in, they needed a composer to do the score. Jerry Goldsmith had famously done the score for Star Trek The Motion Picture, but he was way too expensive for the budget that they had. So they went looking for an unknown or at least a, a newcomer. And through listening to a lot of tapes and suggestions, they found James Horner, who had begun his career a few years earlier doing low-budget Roger Corman films like Humanoids from the Deep. And his biggest credit prior to Star Trek is he had done the score for a Roger Corman film called Battle Beyond the Stars, which was uh, Corman's ripoff of Star Wars. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, Star Trek II was Horner's first big studio uh, picture, and he was eager for the chance, and he was affordable, and I think anyone who knows the score from that movie uh, knows he did a spectacular job. Yes, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, it's it's definitely definitely different from the Goldsmith score, but but very much its own uh, in you know it, it it does its own thing quite well. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um yeah. So there are different cuts of the film. Uh, I mean, there's one theatrical cut that we know of, but then when it came to ABC television, I think in 1983, no, no, the procedure in the day. <laughs> yes, and and back then there was um, there was a trend of to make the movies an event on television. There was a trend of adding in um, footage that had been cut out, often to make a film like into a two night uh, uh, event. Um, that wasn't the case with Star Trek Two because there wasn't actually enough uh, lost or not lost, but edited out footage to make it a two night event, but they did edit back in some things that have been cut out. The most um, significant thing was that there's a character. Um, uh, Scotty is the engineer. And in during uh, Khan's attack on the ship, one of his uh, cadets is killed and he brings the body to the bridge. And then later the cadet passes away in, in, in the medical uh, bay and Scotty is in tears. And in the theatrical cut, the impression one gets is that Scotty just cares about all the people in his command and he's just moved by the death of this young man. What you find out in the, uh, in the television version where they put back a slight subplot that was cut out was that the character was actually Scotty's nephew who had signed on with him. He was eager to be a space cadet. I, that didn't come out right, but he was eager to be a, 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 a cadet uh, in, in Starfleet. 
and Scotty brought him on board. And then, of course, is 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 horribly, uh, you know, um, tragically, you know, moved when his nephew dies. Um, so that was cut back in. There was some um, some expository dialogue was put back in. Nothing super major, but just little bits and pieces were dropped back into the picture. Nicholas Meyer, like they did it for television, and then later when it went to home video. Um, there are several home video releases. Uh, most of them are just the theatrical cut, but at one point the television cut was released and they wanted to advertise it as a director's cut. And Meyer told them, no, he said the theatrical version was a director's cut and he felt they might be ripping people off if they thought they were getting like a whole new movie. And really all they were getting was a few extra scenes. Um, mm-hmm. Famously when Star Trek, the motion picture came out, there was 16 minutes of footage put back in for that television and then later home video release, which actually makes it a much better movie. That wasn't really the case with Star Trek Two. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Not, not just uh, very negligible, but the, but the footage that is uh, reinstated, like you said, it does have some emotional resonance. So yes, yeah. Yes. Uh, so speaking of the home video release, uh, it is worth mentioning that the industry at that time, VHS was in its infancy. I don't know. VHS tapes had uh, uh, the VHS industry had really started. I don't know around 1979. Thereabouts, <coughs> yeah. Excuse me. Um, around 1979 is when VHS tapes uh, were being marketed, where people could actually own films, which was something yep. a concept that just prior to that you would have been arrested had you actually owned <laughs> a print of a yes. film. Yes. And uh, so. 79.95 was the going rate for a new uh, yeah. videotape, usually. And so most people weren't uh, buying them. Uh, they were renting them. That's why. And so the industry was shocked when Paramount made the decision to sell the home videotape for 39.95. Since right. most VCR yeah. tapes cost twice that much, and they would need to sell, a for the time, astonishing 60,000 copies to even break even. And they sold over 120,000. So that's... That's an yep. interesting uh, Yeah, that was the famous, what they call it, the sell-through price. That was, I was going to say. the advertisement, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was one of, the, one of the first, one of the first. The film, when it was released, was, a, was quite a hit. It, it did very, very well. It actually didn't make as much money as the motion picture, but it made about, um, I believe, around $80 million which considering it only cost, the final cost was somewhere around 13. You know, there was some overages. Um, so it actually was much more profitable than the motion picture. Uh, it, it sealed, uh, it made it made made it certain that there would be a number three. We'll say that. Absolutely. Uh, sure. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, yes. So anyway, well, uh, the legacy of uh, Star Trek II, uh, it, uh, it, it continues to live on, and people genuinely uh, think of it as, uh, generally, I should say, think of it as one yeah. of the better entries in the series. Maybe the best. Uh, yep. Number four yep. is the other one that people bring up. Uh, uh, Nicholas Meyer also involved in that one as well, although he didn't direct. But Right. He uh, did write. He co-wrote. Yes, he co-wrote, yeah. yes. Uh, but but nevertheless, it's uh, when you ask people their favorite Star Trek film, it's either two or four, and... I'm gonna go with number two because it's it's more of an emotional. I love I like number four. I have a lot of fondness for it, but number two has the emotional um, power that uh, none of the other entries have. I think it just uh, it just gets the job done in a in quite a a, a nice manner. 
it, it does a lovely job of like I like four as well. The thing with four is that is it's more of a comedy and yes. it is it is a broader appeal film. Like I think it was the most successful of the films until the J.J. Abrams version because it, it appealed to a wider audience. Two is two, I think, accomplishes a couple of things. I think it captures very well the spirit of the television show and what people liked about it. It's an action adventure. The character interplay is great. I think the actors do a very good job. Like people, you know, it becomes easy when you see these kind of cult things that you kind of dismiss the quality. But the acting, Leonard Nimoy is an excellent actor. And and the cast does a very good job. Shatner, who can sometimes be quite hammy, um, is quite good in the film. Like I, I would argue there were a couple of scenes where he goes a little over the top. But it's I, I think it's his best performance in the role. Um and the, the film both is a satisfying adventure. I think it captures the spirit of the show uh, without necessarily, you know, being constantly referencing it the way that I think a lot of modern franchises tend to do. And I think it extended it. I think it gave it a new life that obviously went on to have many sequels. And, and really, we can argue that all the ensuing Star Trek probably came out of the success of, of that film. Um, I will, my personal feeling is I think it is the best of the Star Trek films. I think it's my favorite of them. Though I do, I do enjoy, um, four as well. And I also, I actually enjoy all of them in their way. Um, but I would say two is the one that really stands out as, 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 as a real triumph in the series. <laughs> 